So what I wanted to do as a political journalist, if I did anything, it was to move the goalposts to reframe the question of what do we do about autism? Because I think for a long time, the answer to the question was, that question was, what do we do about autistic people? And the Mm. question now I think is, we shouldn't try to fix autistic people. We should help them live and move throughout this world in the best way possible. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, as of 2018, nearly one in 44 children in the United States have been identified as being somewhere on the autism spectrum. To ensure that neurodiverse students can succeed, schools must be committed to understanding and supporting their unique needs. What are some of the most common myths about individuals on the autism spectrum? What should schools understand about these students? And how can we best prepare students on the spectrum to thrive in life? This is what I want to know. And today I'm joined by Eric Garcia to find out. Eric Garcia is a senior Washington correspondent for The Independent, a prominent online newspaper based in the United Kingdom. Over his career in journalism, he has written for MSNBC, Roll Call, The National Journal, and Market Watch. Eric is also the author of We're Not Broken, Changing the Autism Conversation, a book that seeks to reshape how society understands and works with people on the autism spectrum. Today, he joins us to discuss how schools can better meet the needs of neurodiverse students. Eric, welcome to the show. I've actually been looking forward to this conversation because of your own experience uh, living with autism. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I want to start with uh, your journey. And you are an accomplished uh, journalist, uh, work with various uh, journalism networks and channels. Uh, I did want to ask you, how did you get into that space and particularly political reporting? which seems um, a little interesting, particularly these days. Yeah. So, I mean, I wanted to, growing up, I wanted to be a musician. Uh, we were talking about, I made a Spinal Tap reference. Earlier. I, I, yeah. I played in heavy metal bands and in rock and roll bands and a garage bands when I was a teenager. I wanted to be a musician and that was what I wanted to do. Uh, and so that's I, even more of a reason why I want to know how you got into journalism. If you were a yeah. heavy metal band player. <laughs> yeah. So I think that my mom, when I was like 14, 15, was like, all right, all right, buddy, you need to find a job. You need to find like something you can do other than music. And um, I think what happened was my guitar teacher at the time said, you know, you seem to really like the stories behind the music, like behind the songs, you know, like you, because I used to read all the magazines and the stories uh, uh, about the music that I loved. And he's like, have you ever thought about music journalism? And I thought, okay, that's a way to get a job and still <laughs> be around music, but, but have somewhat of a steady paycheck. Nobody told me about the journalism industry and like how, convoluted this was this was like in the 2000s and then what happened was in 
2007, I was working from a high school newspaper and they just needed somebody to do write-ups of the 2008 presidential primaries. And that those guys just seemed like they were having so much fun covering that. Everybody on TV um, doing that, that just seemed like the most fun job to do. So when it came time and I was thinking about it, I was like, maybe this could be, you know, something that I could, that I could do. Well, and you've actually done very well as a, a political reporter. You've had a, a variety of experiences. I mean, before we leave this, I have to ask, do you still play heavy metal? I still do. Obviously not as much as I, I don't do that as much as I, as I would like to, but like, I mean, I got a few guitars here, you know, like, um, uh, in my in my apartment, I still play music when I can. That was that's still a very big part of who I am, and it's you know it's always going to be a part of what I do. Uh, and I still love going to concerts. The most the first concert I went to go see after the pandemic was Rage Against the Machine. So, um, uh, so so I so so I think that that was uh, really what I was trying. So 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 yeah, it's it's still very very big for me. So one thing that you've talked about is, um, you know, in your book, which we'll get to in, in greater detail, but the transition between high school and college, yeah. it helps sort of change your views about education generally. It's interesting because I think by the time so many students with disabilities get to college, they've gone through the ringer of K-12. Yeah. And asking for accommodations and seeing how arduous it is and how much you have to fight for so little. So that I think that a lot of students with disabilities, and this is what people have told me, and this is also my experience, by the time they get to college, they essentially say, well, it's not worth it. And they don't mm. ask for accommodations, especially if they are, I guess you could say able passing or if they, you know, have invisible disabilities. There is almost this feeling of, I don't need that. Wow. Or I, or, or, or if I'm doing, or, or, or I don't want people to look at me differently. Or I'm not really, quote, quote, unquote, really disabled. And I think all of those messages are ingrained from an early age because disability is seen as a deficit rather than there's a group of people that you need certain accommodations to be on the same playing field with everybody else. I, I don't know why this came to me, but, you know, I visited schools all over the country, all over the world. And I remember visiting a, a school um, a kid who ended up being valedictorian of his class who had a physical disability and yeah. uh, he was in a rural community. He, he was in a wheelchair, but they, the school said they didn't have the resources to uh, build a, a ramp for him. And yeah. they just had stairs everywhere. And he, he showed me where he had um, just went on the grass and just made it work. Yeah. And he said, he said, you know, yeah. his, his parents said they just got tired of trying to get the school to build a ramp for him. And he just, he just made his own little path on the grass. It shows how difficult and excruciating the process of getting accommodations is. So 
a lot of people with disabilities make that calculated decision. What is the net value and the net loss of asking for accommodations? And that's unfortunate, I think, because I, when I got accommodations, my academic life was night and day. I did much better, Hmm. but I didn't think it was worth it for the longest time. Well, let me ask you this, because um, so much of uh, your experience growing up and dealing with these kind of issues prompted you to write the book. And the book, We're Not Broken, Changing the Autism Conversation. Um, You know, what specifically were you trying to accomplish when you set out to write this book? The way that I came to this was I noticed that almost any conversation about autism, anytime you talked about autism in politics, and this was in 2015 when I began writing about autism, began and ended with vaccines. And we should say, uh, Hmm. you you know, right from the get-go, vaccines do not cause autism. That is a myth. It's been been debunked. So what I wanted to do as a political journalist, if I did anything, it was to move the goalposts to reframe the question of what do we do about autism? Because I think for a long time, the answer to the question was that question was, what do we do about autistic people? And the Mm. question now I think is we shouldn't try to fix autistic people. We should help them live and move throughout this world in the best way possible. And what about those myths? Uh, let's get as many on the table as possible, because I think it's real important. I mean, one, as you said, is, you know, that vaccines. But what are some of the other common myths that just seem to consume the discussion about people who are on the autistic spectrum? I think the biggest one, I mean, I think there's so many. I think one of them is that there was this idea that autism only affects largely adolescent, mostly male, mostly white children. Hmm. And well, guess who can get the most, who guess who can afford the most services, you know, yeah, it's upper class or upper middle class white families. And yeah. because the research focused so much on boys, that means that girls were ignored and people of color were ignored. So that's the big one is that autism. We've realized that, you know, the, the, the racial diagnosis gap is closing a little bit, not as much. And we're seeing the gender gap narrowing a little bit, not as much as it should, but a lot of it is just based on who it was a selective bias for a long time. I think the other one is this idea, I think for a long, I don't know if it's so much a myth, but it's just this common mindset in our our head, and I mentioned this, is that we tend to think of autism as something that only affects children, or when we think of autism, we we inherently associate it with children. Well, guess what? Autism is a lifelong condition, and people who are born autistic are likely going to die autistic. Um, But we don't think about lifespan issues on top of that. I think that there's this idea that either a autistic people can't work or if they work, they work in Silicon Valley. And that's not to say that there aren't a lot of people (laughs) in Silicon Valley. Um, 
it's to say that the you know I, I went to the Bay Area in my book and I profiled you know a family, um, and I profiled the company that hires autistic people. What I'm saying though is that those aren't the only people. The other one I think is. I think that a lot of people think of the terms high and low functioning when they think of autism. They tend to think of, you know, people like myself as very high functioning and then people who maybe have an intellectual disability or people who can't speak as quote unquote low functioning. In the book, I talk about this where like I said that I'm more of a fan of the term like high support needs and low support needs hmm. because I tend to think that um, functioning labels really flatten the experience because if you call someone low functioning, what it does is it gives a lot of incentive to almost kind of patronize them or to say they're yeah. not going to amount to much. So we don't need to, you know, invest that much in them. Whereas I think that if you do hot, you call people high functioning, it almost kind of erases the very legitimate needs that they have. Yeah. So that, that binary doesn't do anybody good. I don't think. It doesn't, you know, uh, a perfect example that I use uh, when I was writing this book is that I profile a woman by the name of Aria. Uh, that's a pseudonym. Um, she's married. She has kids. Um, all that. But she had trouble graduating college. Um, and she had trouble finding work. Whereas uh, there's this young man I profile. His name is Hari Srinivasan. He is not speaking. He just graduated Berkeley like a few months ago, he's now started graduate school at Vanderbilt university. At that point, when you think about those things, you have to ask yourself, okay, who's the high functioning, you know, by those standards, who's the high functioning and who's the low functioning one. Yeah. Um, and you realize that that binary just is, it doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's an excellent point. That's an excellent point. Um, and, 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 you know, I want to I want to explore that in this way. Um, sure. So many people don't understand the uninformed what sure. neurodiversity is, what neurodiverse education is, and this sort of speaks to that issue, doesn't it? Um, neurodiversity basically argues not just for autistic people, but for people of ADHD, dyslexia, yeah. Tourette syndrome. Uh, basically any type of neurotype that is divergent from the neuro, you know, what we would call neurotypical, um, shouldn't be cured, but rather they should be accepted and accommodated yeah. and incorporated yeah. into the larger sphere. And I think that is important for education in a lot of ways, because education is the starting point for a lot of things and what we, and what, ch how children are, 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 are taught and, and ingrained what's ingrained in their heads when their kids often goes to the go, goes with them for the rest of their lives. So let me ask you another thing. Uh, it's become, it's become almost fashionable for people to say things like, Oh, they're on the spectrum. You know, there's yeah. this sort of labeling that's taking place, even yeah. with people who may not be on the spectrum. And so talk to me about that sort of dynamic we're seeing in society. Yeah. I mean, I think that a lot of it's, it's almost become a proxy for someone who is socially inept. You know, I remember last year when uh, Elon Musk came out as autistic when he was hosting Saturday Night Live. Yeah. Uh, on one end, <clears throat> I think I was like, oh, this is interesting. Uh, I was, but also I was like, this doesn't surprise me at all. What I worried was that 
people would pathologize any behavior that they didn't like about him as him being yeah. autistic. I've been in settings where people that, you know, may seem socially awkward and someone said, well, they must be on the spectrum. And I've even asked, well, what do you mean by that? You know, because yeah. it, it becomes, it, it, and you, you characterize it best, it, it's become a proxy designation or label. Um, and I do think we need to be aware of that. So let, let's go back to schools and, and education because I, I want to go into two sort of final areas. One is uh, this issue of job training. More and more schools are really focused on school to career. Uh, yes. There's career learning, uh, the old vocational ed stuff. And you know, there's the the STEM careers, there's technology yeah. being used in as early as middle school to enter, introduce kids to pathways. When it comes to how schools work with students in the career space and job training, how should they integrate uh, students who happen to be autistic into the discussion in a supportive way? And this goes back to that myth that Autistic people only work in like the STEM projects or the STEM yeah, sectors yeah. or things like that. I think it's important to expose autistic people in school, autistic students to a wide, as many variety, varied types of job training things, jo job training opportunities as you would anybody else. Because I think if you try to shoehorn a lot, some autistic people into, you know, the STEM sectors, they're going to have a bad time and they're not, they're going to crash and burn. You know, like I should say, I got like a C minus in my computer coding class in college. And I think it was out of pity for my professor. Uh, yeah. I, I, I got like, uh, I barely would pass math. I would like skate by on the skin of my teeth when I was in math, uh, when I was in college and in high school. So I, 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 I think that, you know, when you automatically just assume, okay, they're autistic. So let's just introduce them to the STEM subjects. Not really. I mean, if some want to go into the STEM field, great, cool. But, you know, we should also open them to arts, science, you, you know, language arts and or any others, you know, or trades or, you, you know, or, or any other type of um, practice that are they otherwise that 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 their neurotypical peers would be exposed to. So this is the last question, Eric. This is what I really want to know. When it comes to schools, how can they identify? And I'm taking the job training part of it aside, but just in, in terms of managing the curriculum and the educational experience of young people who are on the spectrum, how can schools best help those students who have diverse needs uh, and frankly, uh, educational support needs. I think on the base level, we should assume, I, I think, I, I, I tend to think that like 90% of educators want to do the right thing. 90 to even, I'd even raise that number to 95, but a lot of times they're strapped for cash. As we know, the federal government has never lived up to its obligation to fully fund the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. Um, so that means that there's just scarce resources. I think the thing that you, I think the thing that educators can do is look at, okay, we have these scarce resources, but what can we do? How do we stretch them out? And how do we, on top of that, make it so that once we learn what we're obviously what works for one person, isn't going to work for everybody, but create a list of best practices so that you can stretch out the, the, those stretch out every dollar, so to speak. Yeah. And make it so that 
you design the education programs with diverse students in mind. That way you're not doing it on the back end, which just costs a lot more, both in time and money and other resources. I love the idea of, as opposed to looking at things in a supplemental way, how do you integrate all this in the beginning of the process? I think that makes a whole lot of sense. So I thank you for that. Eric Garcia, thank you so much. This was a really worthwhile conversation. I appreciate you joining us on What I Want to Know. Thanks for listening to What I Want to Know. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app so you can explore other episodes and dive into our discussions on the future of education and write a review of the show. I also encourage you to join the conversation and let me know what you want to know using hashtag WIWTK on social media. That's hashtag WIWTK. For more information on Stride and online education, visit stridelearning.com. I'm your host, Kevin P. Chavis. Thank you for joining What I Want to Know.